I think there is that opportunity to take a step back, to take a breath. Um, I know that's really hard to say right now with all the, the things coming at everyone, but to think about the future in a way that, you know, we've kind of wiped away the past a little bit. And in some ways, maybe that can be a good thing because it can free us from some systems that weren't working for everybody. This week on Dirty Linen, we are talking about women in hospitality and particularly the difficulties that, um, I guess, societal structures create for women in the industry. I'm really thrilled to be heading over to Austin, Texas today to talk to Deborah Harris. She's a professor of sociology at Texas State University and the co-author of a book called Taking the Heat, Women Chefs and Gender Inequality in the Professional Kitchen. Welcome, Deborah. Thanks so much for coming on Dirty Linen. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I need to ask you first about how things are going in Austin, because we've been seeing on the news, you've had this dreadful cold snap. There's been burst pipes, power out, and it's just been a massive struggle in the middle of a pandemic, no less. Uh, how are things? Uh, things, well, for me personally, things have been... Uh, things have gotten better. Um, I was without power and heat for about four days. And on day three, some friends were able to kind of rescue me. Um, but yeah, I didn't get back into my apartment until last Saturday. Um, but I've been very lucky. We now have heat and water. That was the other big thing was that um, a lot of places lost water. And there's still a lot of apartment complexes or sprinkled throughout the city that don't have uh, running water still. It's just really unthinkable. Um, it just doesn't seem like something that would happen in the United States. Uh, how do you cope when there's no water and no heat in the in in middle of winter? I mean, it was probably, I try to say it with a grain of salt, knowing that I'm still um, a lot luckier than a lot of people, but it was quite frankly, very traumatic, you know, to just know that the information you're hearing from these entities were very, the people in charge of our power and our water, um, there was really not a lot of information about when things were going to get better, if they were going to get better, um, and just having like no way of knowing how long something was going to happen. Um, I had gone into it, um, I, I think of myself as a fairly responsible person, and I had gone into it with plenty of food and, and things like that, not lots of um, good things, thinking at the worst, what we had been told is there'd be rolling blackouts um, and not being told until, you know, over a day into it that, well, actually, you know, we don't, they're not going to roll, they're going to stay in your area of the city, and we have no idea when things are going to get better. So that was, was really disappointing and, and very frightening. As someone in the United States, I had never really lived under those conditions. Yeah, I think, I mean, <laughs> uncertainty has been a little bit of a feature of the past year or so, uh, but it is so much harder to deal with things when you don't know how they're going to play out. Um, I'd also love to ask you about um, vaccinations and how that's flowing through. Is is Texas uh, um, pushing ahead with with, um, with vaccination and has the, has the blackout slowed that down? Well, it did. I mean, in fact, myself, I was getting my second dose. It was scheduled for the week of the blackout. And so it got rescheduled. So I got my second dose myself last Thursday. Um, so we are finally, I would say, maybe a little bit of sort of pushing through in Texas, um, sort of that, that bottleneck that we've been through. So there, I know in Austin, they're, they're practicing getting ready for doing some that, um, mass vaccination sites 
where they'll be able to do, I think they're hoping to get up to 50,000 people a week, I think is their, their goal. Um, so they're trying to ramp up. Um, so we're seeing more of that, you know, things vary very much because um, in the United States, basically each state has their own plan. So for example, I'm originally from Alabama, as you might could tell from my incredible accent, um, <laughs> but uh, my family there, um, there they have different uh, sort of ideas about who is, eligible right now versus what Texas does. So that's another thing that sort of adds a level of uncertainty too about um, just when we can expect everyone to be able to get vaccinated. Mm, it's it's so full on and it's so different to what we've experienced in Australia. I mean, vaccinations have only just started to roll out here, but I guess we don't have the urgency in the sense of so many cases. We've been we've been relatively insulated from the worst impacts of the pandemic, at least in a health sense. Um, but yeah, I was watching CNN last night, and the um, the news desk in the US said, you know, for the first time since I don't know when November or something, we've got fewer than fifty thousand people in hospital due to COVID and I just thought oh my goodness you know that is such a high number and for that to be a good number is it was I just found so yeah it just really threw me yeah I think that is so strange that what the bar we've set for ourselves is how we're doing well is it still seems so crazy I think to a lot of the rest of the world mm. Yeah. Well, I sincerely hope that you're sort of on the other side of it in terms of cold snap, power outages and pandemic. Um, but yeah, let's let's get to today's topic, which is about women in hospitality, women working in professional kitchens. What drew you to this topic, Deborah? Well, I'm a sociologist by training and something I've always been interested in is sort of the greater, the, the bigger issue of sort of women and inequality. And um, the sort of funny story of what got me to the specific research was um, when I first started teaching, my sort of weekly self-care ritual was at the end of every week as I would watch Top Chef as sort of your kind of fun, it's a show here in the United States, I'm sure you've heard of it, where all these professional chefs come and they compete to be named Top Chef. And it was just sort of a fun escapism thing that I would do to kind of wrap up the week and, and kind of relax. And I noticed that there was a big deal about how at the time I had watched it, a woman hadn't won yet. Mm. And there was an episode where they sort of tricked the chefs into getting dressed up to go out to a nightclub um, only for them to find out that, oh no, it was a trick as in a lot of reality show competitions do that they had to then go cook for people. And um, one of the women in particular was like running through a grocery store, getting her shopping done so she could cook. And she made a big point of saying, I'm so angry they did this to us. I never let my underchef see me this way. So I started thinking, well, why is she so upset? And I thought, well, if I was in a male-dominated job, because at this time, like, I could think of a lot of men chefs, even though I wasn't a real foodie or anything, but I couldn't name a woman chef. And I thought, if I was one of the few women in this industry, you know, I probably might try to downplay my femininity. And her being dressed up in a dress and high heels you know, I could see that be making her uncomfortable uh, trying to fit in and compete in this career. And so I got up and I started doing some research and looking around to see that, you know, so much of when we think about what a, if a job is naturally for a male or naturally for a female, and of course I'm putting really big quotation marks around the word natural. Mm. Uh, you know, when we talk about it, we usually try to say things like, oh, well, you know, men are naturally stronger 
women are naturally more nurturing, but it's really hard to say that a job, um, the reason it's so male dominated is because, you know, they're just naturally better at a job when cooking is what a lot of women do every day in the family. Mm -hmm. So it really shows that some of these divisions we have about what's proper men's work, what's proper women's work is very socially constructed. And so that was sort of the hook for really getting me and then my co-author Patty Jufray and I interested in doing this study. Right. Yeah. Fascinating. And yeah, I, I can, I can feel that woman's anger in her high heels in the grocery store. I, yeah, I, I, I really, I really get that. Um, so what were some of the things that you discovered? Yeah, well, we found that it wasn't like when we asked the question, why is the culinary world, particularly sort of high end uh, cuisine, why is it so male dominated? There wasn't really one bit, one answer, one simple trick that would solve this, but it was more about, for example, um, a history where, you know, early chefs, particularly sort of the, the French culinary tradition, which has been held up as sort of the highest, you know, um, at the height of cooking. Um, and so that it was all very male dominated. The early chefs were recruited out of the military and that this had this, the idea of having a cooking brigade came from this military background and that um, women were actually kept out. One of the things we talk about in our book is that women were excluded from this sort of early culinary culture. You know, it was growing in the 1800s and 1900s um, because the idea was that if chefs wanted more status for what they're doing, you know, early chefs were not seen as rock stars like they are today. They're seen as just another servant, but they wanted to be seen as um, professionals who were deserving of more respect, more money. They needed to separate the work that they did professionally from the work being done in the home. So there was a lot of this like, um, sort of denigrating women's cooking at home because they didn't want to be associated with it. So why should we respect you when a woman's doing this job for free at home every day? And so women were excluded from cooking jobs, from cooking competitions, culinary schools. And this created this like male dominated culture that we still see today um, where women chefs, even today when they, they want to move into working in a kitchen, oftentimes, um, the onus is on them to fit into the kitchen, you know, culture. So they have to prove that they're just as physically, just as mentally tough as the men. And they're always under scrutiny, especially at the beginning to prove that they're tough enough. And so you can imagine that's a lot of pressure on women. Um, but the women we talked to, um, they were actually able to, to kind of make it. They were able to, um, really persevere and win the respect of the their male co-workers. A problem, though, they face is that when they got sort of up the kitchen hierarchy, when they got promoted over some of the men, uh, they didn't like it. Like the men didn't like having to answer to a woman. And so they kind of had to prove themselves all over again. And so they had to come up with sort of a gender strategy to be the boss because there weren't any role models. There wasn't a model of a woman chef. So the woman had to figure out what's the best way for them to act. Uh, and so that was another sort of struggle for women to get promoted. Um, and then finally, another thing we found that kind of kept women from rising up in the industry is that it's just a career that's really hard to reconcile with having a family. 
it's really hard, um, especially if you're in the United States, for example, if you're at a small restaurant, do they offer maternity leave? Do they offer, and is it paid? Probably not. Do you have health insurance paid for by your employer? Things like that. And then just the hours that you work, you know, is that compatible with childcare needs? Um, you know, do you have someone that can watch the child at night? Will you ever get to see your kid? You know, that type of thing. And so that sort of pushed a lot of women out of being a restaurant chef was something that we found as well. Mm. I mean, men have children too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was one of the things, right, that um, there's this sort of cultural idea that when, and we're seeing this so much in the pandemic, I don't know if you're seeing this in Australia, but we're seeing it all the time in the United States that when, as things are right now, when there's push comes to shove, even in families that say they're very egalitarian, it's often the women's career that sort of gets put on the bur- the, the back burner, pardon the pun, um, when it comes to um, making sacrifices for the family. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> without wanting to, I think I've said this already in this podcast, so I, you know, I don't know if it's if it's fair to keep keep mentioning it, but um, you know, when when everyone's working in the home, I reckon often it's the woman who still like makes lunch for the mm-hmm. husband or for the man that happens to be there, you know, while he's doing his home office. So I think, um, yeah, as we as we well know, in all kinds of areas of society, women do pick up that um, that domestic load, and yeah, it's um it's a very strong societal structure, and yeah, why why is it not being dismantled, uh, one sandwich at a time? Um, can you talk about the idea, this concept um, that you wrote about called precarious masculinity? Yeah, so that gets back to the issue we we're talking about that when a man does work that is also associated with work being done by a woman, and that could be work that is um, paid work, so it could be like a man going into elementary school teaching or something like that, or unpaid work, which is you know care work at home like cooking, taking care of children. Um, that that job gets sort of tinged with femininity, like it kind of could get this sort of taint to it. And so there's always this sort of tension that their work might be sort of contaminated by and being relabeled as women's work. And therefore, and there's research that shows that when something is labeled as women's work, it tends to get less pay and less prestige. And so men are aware of this. Um, maybe not caught, you know, maybe not, you know, um, you know, at the forefront of their mind, but I think unconsciously or subconsciously, they're aware that um, having their work associated with women can make their work seem less prestigious. And so they take actions to make sure and to shore up the status of their job. And historically, a lot of that meant like, um, as I was saying, like keeping women out of the industry, keeping women out of culinary schools, things like that. Hmm. And I think there was this parallel with with teaching where teaching mm-hmm. initially when, when schools were formalized, it was a mostly male profession. And then as women came into it, the pay went down and the prestige went down. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's not very good. Um, so is there a role I'm just thinking, you know, this idea of, you know, cooking, women cooking in the home. I mean, so many male chefs and restaurateurs sort of lean lean on their grandmothers, lean on, you know, the food of, of their, that they learn, you know, at their, at their mother's, um, at their mother's side and, you know, might, might name their restaurant after their mother, that sort of thing. Like, where do you think this, 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 in one sense, this sort of honouring of those female 
traditions and skills and knowledge that's passed down, where does that, how do they take that and use that? You know, where does that fit in? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, And I think it does relate to that concept of precarious masculinity and even getting sort of passed along to the food. Um, One of the things we did, instead of just also just talking to the women chefs, we also did an analysis of food media. And we looked at how these sort of prestigious publications like um, the New York Times, the San Francisco Chronicle, uh, Food and Wine, and Gourmet magazines, how they talked about chefs and if they talked about men and women differently. And we found that there was this sort of interesting um, sort of trope or sort of almost this plot that you would read about when you're reading about uh, male chefs and their backgrounds. And oftentimes they would be inspired, like you said, from a mom or a grandmom, and they would um, you learn to cook at their side and they would learn to love food. But there was always in like their story, this point when they would like branch out or they would, you know, not necessarily reject, but they would sort of, you know, launch into the stratosphere and leave behind the sort of simplicity of what they had learned as a child. Um, So that was this really common story we kept reading about when we heard, um, when we were reading about uh, these stories about sort of the most upper echelon male chefs. So it was like they would use the women's work as sort of inspiration, but to make sure that it wasn't devalued, they'd have to talk about how they would add a twist to it, or they would make it more technical or more scientific, bring in some of the sort of molecular gastronomy techniques or some of those types of things um, to the sort of very much family-based food. And so there's always this sort of twist or technique that they would bring to show, see, this isn't just what your mom could make. This is different. This is special. Mm, I really recognize that as a, as a food writer, I'm sure, I'm sure I've done that or, or, or played into that construction of cuisine and the way that it can be quote unquote elevated. Mm-hmm. Um, the women that you've spoken to that have, you know, sort of made it in this um, male dominated structure, did they, is that their success or do you, did many of them want to change the structure? Like did, did, do, do you think the way for it to improve for women is for the structure to change or just for women to succeed in the structure as it is? That's a really great question. I think it's a little bit, I think of both. So one of the things that was kind of interesting is when we would talk to these women and we would ask them the questions or point blank, you know, what could the industry do to make it more hospitable to women? Uh, what what could be done? What changes could be made? And a lot of them would say, first of all, nothing. Or they would say, I don't want the industry to change because they really had this identity as chefs and they had kind of gone through this gauntlet and they had made it. And very similar to what we learn about people like in the military or something where you've gone through this really intense, almost hazing, mm. um, they felt like, you know, that made them stronger, that made them, you know, better in some ways. And so when you would talk to them about sort of large scale, like top down changes, they were really resistant to it. But when you ask them specifically, okay, so how do you raise your, how do you run your restaurant versus to where you were trained? They had very different things that they did. So they may have come up in their training in a restaurant where there was just, you know, rife with sexual harassment. But they talked about in their own, um, now that they're the boss, they're the owner, 
how they would shut that down and how they would make sure that was not acceptable and that everyone knew it. Mm. Um, that they would try to be more collaborative and they would try to bring in everyone in the staff to work together and learn things. And so it was really interesting that they didn't want some sort of like outside body coming and dictating how the industry should be, but they were very much involved in on their own, what could they do to run a more collegial um, environment for their employees. And do you have any sense of whether those women mostly employed other women or whether it was possible for them to create those different environments in kitchens and, or restaurants that had a lot of men working in them? Well, I think, um, I don't think anyone was able to have sort of an all-women kitchen team, the people that I talked to, just because there was sort of a shortage of them. You know, there's not as many women in the industry. Um, but I think a lot of them had a mixed gender um, sort of kitchen team and kitchen staff. And some people even said that they purposely wanted that. They said that, you know, bringing in a woman could sometimes tamp down what they saw as the sort of negative, you know, macho masculinity. Um, and so uh, I don't think anyone had a all woman staff, but I think a lot of them had, you know, a mixture of men and women working for them. Mm. We, we've got tipping in Australia, but it's not the same as, as it is in the US. You know, like we have base wages and tipping is, you know, an important part for front of house staff, but it's not what they, you know, necessarily rely on to, to live and to get by. In the US, that's obviously different. I'm not sure how much of your study is actually related to front of house, but do you have a sense of the way that tipping plays into discrimination against women in restaurants? I think it's a big issue, um, not necessarily, um, well, I do, most of my research is focused on sort of back of house, so women working as chefs, women who own restaurants, but I definitely see this as being an issue for the restaurant industry as a whole, um, as well as for the individual people working, particularly front of the house. Um, yeah, I, our tipping culture in the United States is, is very interesting, um, and we see this as being something that... Um, you know, issues like sexual harassment, issues like women being tr mistreated by both customers and by the people they work for, um, being caught in that web. And a lot of it has to do with sort of the economic precarity that they're in, right? Like if you live off of tips, um, that sort of idea of the customer always being right, you know, plays out. Um, if you rely on tips, therefore you need to have the best shifts possible if you're wait staff, for example, or a bartender. And so if your manager, your owner is acting in an inappropriate way, it's really hard to rebuff them knowing that they control your access to these tips, which is how you make your living. So I think it's, it's a very, um, sort of insidious thing. And I, I teach this when I talk about my food and society classes that I teach, because a lot of my students, they work in restaurants. A lot of them have been waiters, waitresses, bartenders. And at first, when I bring up tipping, they're like, no, we love the tipping system. You know, they, they think of it as something that financially benefits them. But then I kind of walk through like, okay, so in the system, though, how does what sort of power does it give? to the customers? What kind of power does it give to the owners, the managers? And then they start seeing like, oh, some of my, my not so great work experiences, if you kind of come down to it, 
the economy of tipping is definitely a part of that. Oh, that is so interesting that someone has to learn about this in a in a sociology class at at a university. I mean, it's almost like you should before you're allowed to work in a restaurant, you should have some of these things deconstructed for you. Yeah, it's always so funny because I do talk to my students, and they're they're you know I think you know that I think there's a psychological term, and I don't know what it is. Yeah, I'm not, not a psychologist, but I definitely feel like when you're in a role like working for a tipped wage, you do tend to remember when you had these great nights and you had these like fabulous tips um, or you remember, you know, the times when things were good and you don't remember that sort of like Wednesday afternoon lunch that, you know, was nothing. Yeah. Right. But I think there's a little bit of that. And for younger people who may have more flexibility in their schedule because they don't have families, for example, being able to pick up like extra shifts to make ends meet, you know, is something that also you don't think about, you know, what that really means for how much labor you have to put in um, to hit this sort of basic living wage. Mm, Yeah. So interesting. And I'm sure, you know, these are, these are young students, I'm sure as people get, get older, I mean, you talk about the family responsibilities, but I think, you know, there's other, it's, you know, probably the older you get, I'm sure there'd be some kind of study like older waiters get lower tips. I, I think there'd be a lot of, lot of um, different types of discrimination that play into that. And and speaking of which, um, and this is a big question. So, but I'm just looking at some of the some of your scholarly work, and it's there's so much interesting interesting stuff. I just want to talk about all of it. But let's just do. You, where do you see the intersections with with race and other types of discrimination, perhaps on around sexual orientation and the kinds of things that we see women facing? You know, is there are there similar dynamics at play? I think so. I mean, our sample was not as diverse as I would like it to be. Um, in talking to women chefs, um, we did have some women of color, but the uh, majority were white women. Um, and we do see, and we also had, the majority of them were also heterosexual. Um, some of the research from talking to people and then also from reading, um, we do see some interesting things when you look at women who, for example, who identify as lesbian or identify as queer Um, is then they sort of um, occupy the sort of weird third role. I mean, they talk about this themselves, that in some ways they fit in well with the men. Like sometimes the men adopt them as like, you know, sort of a pseudo male, you know, in their kitchen, depending on how they sort of present themselves. Um, But at the same time, that makes them very uncomfortable. And, you know, they might, treat them like, oh, you're my sounding board for me to talk about problems or to talk about, you know, that waiter or waitress that I think is attractive and would like to have sets with. So they, they get this sort of weird social um, role that they often are forced into is from what we've talked about talking to women who identify as lesbian or queer in the kitchen. Uh, for women who are racial ethnic minorities, there are these additional barriers, right? When, um, since I did this book, one of the, the things I've been looking at recently is sort of the, the role of entrepreneurship and how difficult it can be for women of color to get access to the capital that they need to open their own business and how women who have these amazing like resumes, these amazing you know, list of accomplishments, 
Um, but when they go to get the money and ask people to invest in it, uh, they sometimes are not successful uh, compared to if a white male had gone in with a similar background um, of, of sort of proving themselves, a track record like that. And so I think that is a big issue. Um, and also for women of color, you know, are they seen as having the same skill set? Are they you know, given the same amount of respect? Um, when we were analyzing some of the media about men and women, there was also some really interesting racial discussions in this food media where if a woman of color or even a man of color, uh, a racial ethnic minority, when they would cook something, especially if it was a dish associated with their racial background, um, somehow that was talked about as if it wasn't as much an accomplishment, if it was this more sort of traditional French cuisine. It was kind of like, oh, that's just natural for them to be able to make, you know, a Mexican chef make a great plate of enchiladas. Like that's not an accomplishment versus, you know, making, you know, this wonderful, like, you know, French dish, right? Mm. And so there's a sort of subtlety, I think, where maybe their food is not seen as such an accomplishment or such a, a hierarchy of, of, of cuisine, but then also they're faced with the barriers trying to break into the economic side of owning a restaurant. Wow, it's so layered, isn't it? And I, I guess, you know, the, the, the kinds of things that are, are privileged are so codified in the world of food, you know, whether it's, it's that white male chef who is allowed to be the best and then it's like, what do you have to be the best at? Well, you have to, to be the best at this elevated, you know, cuisine that's come out of the French a French um with the French heritage yeah it's there's so many barriers to break down and I guess you know one of the words that comes up for me is this is this uh, this barrier to for to vulnerability like that people can't be themselves that they're always taking on these roles or trying to need feeling that they need to be a certain way or a certain type of person to be able to progress up the ranks and I guess in some ways you know kitchens are a really fast-paced environment in a way you know hierarchy kind of works in terms of just you know getting shit done Um, but did you see examples of kitchens where there were really different structures that allowed people to be more themselves you know no matter who they were um, in our research, what I tended to see more of was a more a collaborative approach where it was not a competition to see, you know, who would get a dish put on the menu that night, but more of a collaboration of how can we work together um, to make this you know, restaurant run as well as humanly possible. So that tended to be more what I saw there. Um, but yeah, I understand this idea of trying to move away from there can only be one to how can we work as a team and you're right like the the pressure to be inauthentic was really hard for the women um, especially when they tried to ascend to be a leader right if they tried to take on sort of the the harsh top-down you know very you know you know angry like yelling kind of orders barking orders that people chef you know, the sort of classical male model that we sometimes think about, you know, they were labeled as a bitch, right? So it was seen as they were not being authentic. They were trying to act like a man. That was a very common thing that women mm. chefs were trying to emulate the men chefs they had, you know, trained under. Um, but then the other side, if they were too nice or too approachable, 
they also were labeled like a girly girl and then they weren't given as much respect either. And so for a lot of the women we talked to, the sort of third path that they took um, and maybe not even consciously was they kind of adopted the sort of like mom or big sister. So mm -hmm. they would be like, you know, friendly, but they would also have boundaries and they would kind of mentor uh, the people you know, on their staff. And it was really great because I think even if you were a male chef and you had never worked for a woman, you've had a mom, you probably had a big sister or someone like that, a female authority figure. And so that definitely helped the women in their day to day, but sometimes they still struggled, right? Um, because I think we all know at the end of the day, mom cleans up. And so <laughs> they still had a lot of this extra labor that they had to do as part of that performance. Yeah, it, it, it's funny you say extra labor because as you were speaking, I just started to feel exhausted. <laughs> like it's yeah. just a lot. <sighs> um, yeah, Deborah, it's, there's, so much to, there's so much to be done still. There's so much work to do. And look, there are some great women in leadership roles, great women restaurateurs um, and fantastic women chefs coming up through the ranks. I think things are changing a bit. Things are definitely better than they were, but there's still a long way to go. Um, where do you think things are headed as we, as we wrap up our chat? Well, I think it's really hard to say right now because we are still in this pandemic and we have had such a huge impact on um on the restaurant industry on the restaurant sector yeah so yeah. one of the things i've been struggling with is wondering because there there has been a push at least in the united states for some more talk about some of these gender issues to talk about more issues of racial justice in the food industry as a whole um so the question does become how does that get impacted by the pandemic um, you know, did those sort of ideas get pushed to the side, you know, because there's just a struggle for survival right now. Um, so I think that's sort of the big question mark, right? Are we going to keep on trying to address what we see are the, the bigger long-term systemic issues in the industry or with sort of all hands on deck, just trying to survive, will that get allow maybe allow us to say oh we'll worry about that down the line when things are more stable yeah it's such a big issue I mean we've been much luckier than you in Australia in terms of you know how much restaurants have been allowed to open and things are not quite normal but you know everywhere's open now and I think there is this real tension between you know if not now then when you know this is such an amazing opportunity to reset but also this very very strong push back to normal quote unquote yeah, and I think that is something, I think a lot of us globally are thinking about that is, you know, as we, you know, knock on wood and all the wood available in the world, as we move more towards normal, you know, what, what can't, what changes can we make? Because this is also a really good time to make those changes. We've sort of taken this break. Um, so you can say, you know, the, the claims that we have to do certain way, because it's always been done this way. Well, things have changed so much. You can't even say that now that, oh, this is always the way it's been. Well, no, it hasn't been that way for a year. Um, mm. so I think now is a good time to maybe try and take some stock and think about going forward with tradition and these feelings that things have to be done a certain way. Do they? I think there is that opportunity to take a step back, to take a breath, 
Um, I know that's really hard to say right now with all the, the things coming at everyone, but to think about the future in a way that, you know, we've kind of wiped away the past a little bit. And in some ways, maybe that can be a good thing because it can free us from some systems that weren't working for everybody. I love it. I really hope that happens. I think you're so right. It is the time to make some changes. And yeah, there's a lot of people working towards it. And, you know, I hope that that energy isn't, yeah, isn't dissipated and that there can be some amazing follow through. Um, Deborah, it's been an absolute privilege and pleasure to have a chat to you today. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise. Um, Yeah, we're really grateful. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Great. Thank you. Take care and stay warm out there. I'll try. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. We spend a week thrashing around each issue, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This is a Deep in the Weeds production.